John, thank you for leading us in singing, and good morning, everyone. I'm Bob, uh, and if you're like my son. He looked down at the bulletin, and he said, this says Tony Cloud on there. Uh, today, you get the understudy. Uh, I, for various reasons, the shepherds here asked if I would share with you just a taste test, a snippet, of what we talked about in the men's retreat this weekend, which is an introduction to the letter of Ephesians, and a little snapshot in that second chapter. So the verse that I've selected for you this morning is Ephesians chapter 2, uh, verses 1 through 10. And I mention that now so that you can go find it, either in a uh, Bible that you have there uh, in the, the chairs, or if you have that on your phone. If you would, find this letter of Ephesians. Now, it's going to be in your New Testament. This is one of those letters that's written to the early Christians. And so you're going to find it in that last part of your Bible. It'll be in the, what's called the New Testament. And about halfway through that, you'll find these series of letters that all end in the eons. You know, Galatians, Philippians, and there's Ephesians. And that lets you know that this comes from a letter that was first written to a group of people just like us. But it was a much smaller group. And they were probably in a a small house-type church in the city of Ephesus, which is very much like uh, Anchorage. It was sort of the anchorage of what is modern-day Turkey, uh, if you know your geography of the Mediterranean Sea area. And Ephesus was very much like this city, right there on the coast. It was a center of commerce. It was a multi-ethnic city. Uh, and and multi-religious even city and was under the Roman Empire at the time and was a center of commerce and market in the area. And so in many ways, a lot like Anchorage, where it just, it's one of those places where people from all over the world, for whatever reason, end up being pulled together. And there in that city, on a Sunday, just like this, there was a group of people that circled around and for the first time got to read the words that you will get to hear. And it was on that day that someone walked in, probably a guy named Tychicus, who carried this letter. And they opened up this parchment and they read the letter. Now today we're just going to read a little snippet of that. But I hope, for most of you, uh, this will be enough for you to go home today and say, I want to read the whole letter. And that would be, that would be, uh, that that would make me very happy (laughs) to hear that this led you back to actually read the whole letter. Uh, And so we'll read that passage together here in just a moment. Today, if you've had your ears open, you've heard the gospel presented many times. John did it in his uh, opening comments before we sang. Did you hear in the songs? The good news, this word gospel means good news. This, this good news, something you need to hear, has been woven through our songs. Uh, it was in courts, uh, Court Redding's comments as he led us back to those moments in the upper room with those disciples And for just a moment, we were able to to feel what that was like, to have our feet washed, and then to hear Jesus say, you go do that too. And then to go to be there at the foot of the cross where Jesus' mother was, and and John, and some people got to witness that. And we, in our minds, got to witness just that as we prepared to take communion, and then back to Gethsemane and feel the weight of what Jesus did for us. And then we held in our hands the good news. Did Did you feel the weight of that? You got to hold in your hands something to remind you of the body of Christ that was broken for you and the blood that was spilled out for your sin, for your, what the Bible calls transgressions, for the, the serious mistakes that you've made. You and your hands got to hold how much God, the, the extent to which God is willing to go to make you right again. You heard it. 
and you've heard it in our prayers and what we've thanked God for, and now we get to open his word and hear the gospel again. I hope what you hear in that (laughs) series of thoughts is that somebody's trying to sell you on something here. We're trying to recruit you, not to an organization. This is not recruiting to a new job. It's recruiting you to an idea, a word, in which Jesus was called the word, that God is making the world right again, one person at a time, and you are invited to be a part of that great work when God makes the world right again. I think every child in here knows that people do bad things. And it's an unfortunate reality that though there are many things in this world that are beautiful and good and loving and true, that all of us immediately can think of things that have happened even this day, this week, this last month, that are bad, that are evil. And when you look at all of the results of what is done in the world, the malnutrition, the poverty, the injustice, the wars, the misuse of people, the trafficking of individuals, all of that comes back to people doing very bad things. Uh, Let's read this passage and see how Paul addressed that with a group just like us in Ephesus whose world looked very much like ours. And listen to what Paul says here. This is in Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 1. He says, as for you, and you need to know this word you is plural. It's, it's not just you individual. As for you all, you all were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live, When you follow the ways of the world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. The word there, disobedient, means obstinately disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our bodies or our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. Or some of your versions will say, we were sons of wrath, objects of wrath. Verse 4, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you, you all, have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves. It's a gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork. Some of your versions will say, we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Isn't that a beautiful passage? It's rich and deep. It's worth a lot of long talks at home around the dinner table 
It's worth a lot of long walks with somebody with whom you can talk openly and freely. And it's worth a lot of long time in a private room where you think through, what does this passage mean to you? Let's see if we can pull out what would be meaningful for us today. You know the human condition. You know that people do bad things. And if we were to describe the current human condition, you might use words like, the cause of all evil and suffering in the world are things like inequality, injustice, corruption, maliciousness, selfishness, greed, the telling of lies. You could go on with your list. This is how you might describe the human condition. But do you notice how Paul, when he wrote this letter, what word did he use to describe the human condition? As for you all, he picks this word dead. As for you, you were dead. In your transgressions and sins, those tend to be words we use a lot around here. I don't know if you use that at work or at home, but the the word transgression just means you stepped outside the line. The word sin means to miss the mark. Another way to say this is because of your missteps and misdeeds that have serious ramifications, that affect not only you but also others, and in a ripple effect brings evil into the world, because of that, you all, Paul says, were dead. Now, yesterday we grappled a little bit with this word dead, and we caught ourselves wanting to soften it a little bit and say, well, that means spiritually dead, or that uh, our, you know, life is not quite as good as it could be, you know, as if to soften that. But Paul doesn't do that, does he? He uses a word that meant as much to those people in Ephesus 2,000 years ago as it means to you, because I suspect you know what it means when something or someone is dead, lifeless, useless. Do you know what the word in Greek for this is? This really brings it to light. It's the word nekrus. It's where you get the word necrotic. Some of you in healthcare know that if somebody calls the wound a necrotic wound, you know, we put on our mask and not because of COVID. It's going gonna, it's gonna to smell. And you've been about uh, around rotting. Those of you who are hunters, you know what rotting flesh smells like. Those of you who are fishermen know what rotting fish smells like. You know that acrid, offensive smell. And that's what comes to mind when Paul uses this word. As for you, because of your misdeeds and your missteps, you were dead. And when something is dead, it is lifeless, it is useless, it is no longer good for anything. And what do you do with something that's dead? You know, if you go out to start your car here and it doesn't start, and somebody's going to say, hey, your battery is dead. Yeah, your engine doesn't start, your engine is dead. If I start using too much Greek up here, you'd say, cut it out. That language is dead. No, it's not. Some people call that a dead language. No, the point is that if something is is truly dead, like think of a battery, what do you do with it? What do you do? Oh, yeah, nowadays you recharge it, yeah. (laughs) That's actually a great illustration. We're going to come back to that. If it's not rechargeable, you could replace it. And what do you do with the old one? You throw it in the trash. Do you know that in the first century, if you wanted to say what, what happens to a person who because of misdeeds and missteps that have caused evil and harm in the world, 
that person has a destination, the word in your Bible that's used is the word hell. But do you know that that word is not a word known in the first century language, at least not in the way that you understand it? That's an old English word, has a little bit of Germanic origin to it. But uh, Jesus never used that word. That's not a word that shows up, even though it's translated that way in your Bible. There's actually three different words that are used for that concept or that idea. But do you know what word Jesus used most often to refer to what you do or what happens with things that are useless or evil? He used the word Gehenna. And it turns out that that word Gehenna was actually the name not of a of a thing or a concept. It was actually a place outside Jerusalem. That was the name of the city dump. And so when Jesus, one example there is in the Sermon on the Mount, when he said, you know, if your if you're right hand offends you, what do you do? You cut it off and you throw it away because it's better to enter into life without your hand than it is for your whole body to be thrown into, he says, Gehenna into the city dump. And that's what's used throughout the New Testament. It's called the city dump. That's where you threw the... And everybody in Jerusalem would have known that. That concept probably would have spread throughout the Mediterranean world, certainly in the minds of Jewish people, because they knew what happened in that valley that became the city dump. That's the place where people sacrificed their children to Molech and burned them in the fire. That's where great atrocities had occurred, and so nobody wanted to build their house there. Nobody wanted to live there. That became the city dump. And so that's where you threw things that were worthless and lifeless. That's where they threw animals when they died. Instead of, you know, if they couldn't be buried, they would throw the animals. And that's where they threw the criminals who did not deserve a proper burial, and so after their execution, they would be thrown into the city dump, Gehenna. That's the idea that comes to mind when Paul writes this letter and says, as for you, you were dead because of your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work and those who are disobedient. All of us lived among them at one time, gratifying these cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. What are these forces that he's talking about? You understand there is, there's so much right now that's influencing every decision that you make. Forces that you're not even aware of. And these are marketing forces and political forces and uh, economic forces and educational forces and environmental forces. I mean, you can just, we even call them forces, forces of nature. These are, these are powers. The word that would be used in the New Testament is powers. They have an influence on what you buy and what you do with your time, what you chose to wear today. All of these are being influenced. And there was a time when you followed the forces that are leading people to do what is evil and harmful in this world. And did you notice the switch from the you all here in this passage where Paul says, we all were among them at one time. We're all in this boat together. We've all been there. And he says, by nature, like everybody else, We were objects of wrath, or in this version, deserving of wrath. And you would probably think, I bet God is very angry with me. When you read this passage, God must be very upset with me. And that's what Paul says. He has every reason to be. But do you notice that's not what Paul said? How does God feel about you? Despite what you have done, despite what evil we have brought into the world, here's how God feels about us. 
because of his great love for us. God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgression. Do you see the contrast between dead, don't give up that word, necrotic, decomposing, dead, that's where you were, and God, because of his great love for us, he wants you to feel the contrast, makes us alive with Christ. Do you see the difference? And he raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the -the over-the-top riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. It is by grace that you've been saved. And did you catch this? That God not only raises you up, he seats you right next to to Jesus. It's kind of a big brother moment where you're sitting right next to him. That's the contrast. The image is that of um, the image is that of going into a city dump and finding something of great value. Do you know what a rag picker is? Have you heard that term? That's the old term. I grew up in middle Tennessee and we had a lady in our town that everybody called the bag lady. And everybody knew who she was. She was someone who probably experienced homelessness, and she uh, would go from store to store, and she had a grocery cart. I don't know which grocery store donated this, but she had a grocery cart. And she would go from uh, behind the stores, dump to dump, and, and dig through those. And I met her one day. I was a teenager, about 16 years old. I worked in a jewelry store, and my job at the jewelry store was to keep the place clean. <laughs> I didn't want you to think I knew anything about jewelry. <laughs> And my job was just to keep things in order. And so I would bag up the trash each day and take it out. And when I went to the back, I would have fun with that because the dumpsters had the big you know, window in the side. And I'd do the wind-up throw and psh, it would fly through and hit the back of the can and explode. And one day I did that. And as I let go of the bag, a head popped up. You know, And it was her. She was in the dumpster that day. And the bag went through and exploded. And I thought, oh, what have I done? You know, But I went up with my second bag and I put it down in the dumpster. And there she was sitting there in the back of the dumpster, a little bit scared at that moment. And if I had the moment to do over again, I probably would have spent more time there. I didn't know what to say. Uh, I, I remember lowering the bag into the dumpster and looking at her and, and saying, Hi. <laughs> I probably, as a teenager, said something really unfortunate, like, I hope you find something nice here. I don't know that that's what I said, but that's what I thought as I walked away. I still clearly remember thinking As I walked away, there's somebody who's going to go through what I just threw away and find something of value. And that's exactly what she would have done. You realize God is like that. God, who is rich in mercy, is like the cosmic rag picker who comes into the city dump. And he digs through the dump to find you. And when he finds you, because of his great love with which he loves us, he reaches and brings you up. And notice what he does with you. And he seats you right next to his son, Jesus. That's how much God loves you.
And that's what Paul's trying to convey here. You were in a bad place. You were there in the world, but God found you and made things right again. But notice it doesn't end there. He says, for it is by grace you have been saved. Get this straight. Don't forget it. There is nothing that you did, nothing that made you sparkle that caused God to grab for you. There is nothing that you can do that will impress God. It is by grace that you have been saved. Understand, God has made the entire cosmos. When you look at those images that come back from the modern telescopes and you look at just how vast the universe is, and, and for just a moment, surely that takes away all of our breath when we see those kinds of images. And then on the other end, when you look just as far down into the tiny, minuscule, microscopic world through the technology that allows us to see just how fine-tuned things are at the smallest of levels, and you look between those two vast extremes at how great the expanse of all creation is and just how finely tuned it is to the smallest detail, and you say, what is man that you're even mindful That's the attitude, of course, to take. You understand there's nothing that you're going to be able to present to God that's somehow going to impress him or open his eye or say, I'm going to pick you over somebody else. That's not how it works. There is nothing that you have that will impress God. And every time that you try to do that, understand what it's like when you try to do something and then even in a feeling think, okay, that's going to impress God or make God happy. Do you understand... uh, it's a bad example, but it's, it's kind of like trying to impress Elon Musk, you know, the multi-billionaire, with how much you decided to give this morning in church. You know, here's a guy who's going to spend $40 billion plus to buy a social media platform, Twitter. For those of you who don't, Elon Musk, I'm, you know, one of the richest people in all the world. Imagine trying to impress him with even what's in your pocket right now. I mean, it's just the comparison is is not there. My point is that's sort of what it's like going before God and saying, hey, look what I was able to do. (laughs) Look at my good works. And Paul says, no, that's not why you're saved. It is unconditioned. God saved you because he loves you. But you know, there is something that does impress God and will turn his head. Elon Musk would never even notice this, but Jesus did. Do you remember in Luke? When the widow, who had hardly anything, went walking into the temple, and everybody was bringing in, all the billionaires of the time, were bringing in their lot and giving quite a bit. She came in and gave two little, what were called mites, probably less than even a penny's worth now. And she put those two little mites into the giving. And do you remember Jesus' reaction? It blew him away. Wow! That's the Greek word. (laughs) Wow! Did you see that? They're all giving out of their abundance. She, in her poverty, gave everything she had. What was he commenting on? She gave everything she had. It was her faith. That's what you see in Scripture, is that when God stops in his tracks... When he turns his head, it is not because of what somebody did. It's because of this thing called faith. When the uh, friends lowered the 
the, the paralytic man through the roof right there in front of Jesus. There in Mark, uh, early on in Mark 2, you see this story where friends loved their friends so much they brought him to Jesus and they lowered him down in front of Jesus and Jesus turned and it, he looked up and saw them and the Bible says when he saw their faith, he said, your sins are forgiven, and then eventually he heals the man. When the woman pushed her way through the crowd, and she reaches out and takes Jesus by the cloak, and he finds out who did it and turns to her, he says to her, go in peace. Your faith has saved you. Even when non-Jewish folks, so the centurion, remember the Roman soldier, had a servant that was very sick, and he, he knew Jesus could heal him. And so he sent word to Jesus to come and heal the man, and Jesus says, all right, let's do it. And Jesus stood up to go. But a servant comes and says, the centurion says, do not come. And do you remember what the centurion said? He said, I am a man of authority. I have men under me. I tell them to come, they come. I tell them to go, they go. I know how this works. Say the word and my servant will be healed. You remember Jesus' reaction? Again, wow, I've not seen that kind of faith. And all of Israel. And, that, and the stories go on and on. I get carried away a little bit with that. But it's just to show you that the one thing that makes you sparkle in God's eye is the other side of his love, which is when you recognize that's who I want to follow. And your faith counts as if everything has been done right and he lifts you up and seat you next to Christ. It's by grace that you've been saved, but notice he says, it's through faith. Um, Russ, I didn't ask if I could do this, but I'm going to borrow an illustration. He, uh, he and I were talking yesterday as part of the men's retreat about an illustration of this very verse, and he said, you know, the image that comes to my mind is it's like, it's like you're a captive, and you're uh, you know, think of it as being incarcerated and you have all of these people around and these officers and they've got guns on you and you're locked in and you know that somebody out there is negotiating your release. So imagine you're on death row and you know your big brother is working to get rid of your release and your big brother runs in and says, we've done it, you're free, come with me. And they reach over and they unlock the handcuffs and it's time to go. And all the officers are still standing around you know, it's, it's at that moment that you don't have to know everything that was done to get and to secure your freedom. All you know is, I trust this person. I'm going with them <laughs> and getting out. That's what he's describing here. And for those of you that are new followers of Christ, you know exactly what I'm saying. It's not that you have to know everything about what it means to follow God or everything about being a child of God or everything about the scripture to follow him. What it takes is that moment of faith where you say, I know enough. Faith is not blind, it's not a blind leap. It's not taking action in spite of evidence. It's having enough trust to say, I don't know everything, but I know enough to say, I'm following this man. I'm following Jesus out of captivity. And that's what your faith is. It's by grace you've been saved. But notice that Paul hammers this point home and he says, it's not of yourselves, it is a gift. It's a gift of God. Not by works, because we're human beings. And if it were by works, you would have something to talk about long and loud about what you did to impress God. And Paul says it doesn't work that way. You have nothing to boast about. It's not by works. It's a gift of God. For we are God's handiwork. 
you know what that word is, handiwork? Uh, the actual original word is the word poema. You could probably hear in that the word we get from poema. It's the word poem or poetry. Poetry is something that's crafted or made. You are God's poetry. You are formed by God. And hear the balance here too. Just like it's death to life here, he contrasts two things and says, you're not saved by work. You are God's work. And the word that he uses there takes you all the way back to the beginning, all the way back to the garden. Do you remember when God made humanity? He had, he had separated dark from light and the sun and the moon and the stars are all in their place and there's land and there's this moisture layer of atmosphere and then there's garden plants and then there's fish in the sea and birds and then there's land animals. And at the end of all of that, we're told that God formed man and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. It's that same word translated back into Hebrew, God You are what is formed by God. And some of you will remember that when God made humanity, he gave us a job to do. It was to be fruitful, like in our work, to be good in our work, and to multiply, and to fill the whole earth, and to do good. Looking after the fish of the sea, and the birds of the air, and the land animals, and all of this creation. There was something that was supposed to be done that was good. Of course, all that went awry. That's the story of Eve taking the forbidden fruit. And from that time forward, evil is introduced into the world. And people become unjust and oppressive and liars and harmful to others and seek out of selfish ambition to do their will. And it causes harm and it just ripples out some of that harm you feel even right now because of decisions made. But God, because of his great love for us, pulls people, humanity, back to the original plan. And that's what Paul is saying. You're not going to impress God with your good works. You are his good work. And God doesn't just leave you in the city dump when you fail. He pulls you out and he gives you life. And notice how Paul ends here by saying that you were created in Christ Jesus. Because Jesus is the one who took our sin on that cross that we sung about and took that sin to the grave. He destroyed sin in sinful people. Because of what he did, we in Christ can be returned to those good works which God has prepared ahead of time for us to do. Do you remember as we were about to take communion? Court reminded us of that first time when Jesus passed these emblems on to the disciples. Before they had the meal, he washed their feet. And after washing their feet, Jesus looked at them and said, Now that I, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, you now wash each other's feet. It's that same principle. Now that I have done this for you, you do it for one another. The whole point there is this overarching story, this good news, is that you and I, who were dead, have been made alive. But God doesn't just pull us out of the garbage and put us kind of like a trophy on the shelf to say, hey, look what I found. That's not how that works. When God restores you, it's back to a place in this place in time to pick up your part in doing good 
here in this place and in this time? What is the good that you are positioned to do this week? In your home, what is the good that you bring into your house this week with your children, with your spouse, with your parents? What is the good that you are positioned to do this week at your school? What about in your line of work? What are you positioned to do this week in your organization for your employers with your coworkers? What are you positioned to do that is good? In this city, what are you positioned and prepared to do? I can't tell you, I can't even look at you and know what exactly God has prepared for you to do. What I can say is that scripture is very clear that we have been formed in this place and time to do good works which he set the agenda for, which he prepared in advance for us to do. Well, some of you are just investigating this. You're on the front end wondering, should I follow Jesus or not? I hope what you capture from this passage is Jesus' invitation to you to trust him. That's really it. And trust is just a few inches away from faith. But Jesus will earn your trust first. And then once he earns your faith, what's meant to be shown by this passage is just how much God can do with you and through you once he has raised you to sit with Jesus. I hope you'll consider to follow him. Those of you who are seriously thinking about, is this the right time? And when it's the right time, uh, we go through a practice that's been true from the beginning, which is baptism. It imitates this whole story where you die to yourself. That sinful part of you is thrown into the trash where Jesus took it. But you, the part of you that God formed, is raised up out of that water, and you walk a new life just like Jesus. And that's, that's offered today for you. Some of you have followed Jesus for some time, and I hope in this passage this is a great reminder of, oh, this is the story I inhabit. This is the gospel I get to, uh, I get to live out. And then I hope for all of you, you see the point that Paul makes here. You were you prepared to do something pretty amazing this week. You take your life pretty seriously. Do you see how God takes your life even more seriously than you do? Long before you existed, he set the agenda. Isn't that amazing? I hope for all of you, you stand for just a minute amazed by God. Well, that's just a taste test of that passage. And if you can, later today, take you about 15 minutes, read the whole letter and see how much more all of this just just explodes. But if it's time for you to respond to that message, if there's something in that word that stirs in your heart for which we need to pray or if actions need to be taken, then this is a good time to do that as we now stand and sing.